Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of What's the Res? My name is Josh Herring. I'm the Director of Debate and Dean of Students for Thales Academy Rollsville in Rollsville, North Carolina. I am joined today on the call by Dr. Adam Key. Dr. Key is an Assistant Professor and the Graduate Director of an exciting new program. He's heading up the Master of Fine Arts in Debate and Communication at the University of Arkansas at Monticello. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited to uh, learn more about your program. I saw your announcement and thought, you know, I'm not really where I'm looking at for a, a new master's degree, but it sounds like a really exciting idea. Well, uh, before we get into uh, the program particularly, tell us a bit about you. Uh, what, what's your academic journey been like? How have you ended up at uh, the University of Arkansas? So... I took kind of a non-traditional route to this. I debated all through high school and then college. Uh, high school was Klein Oak High School, and, and that was back when Student Congress was not yet a qualifying event. It was uh, simply a consolation event. So just to kind of you know, date myself a little bit, I was an LD debater way back when, and that was when LD was still about value debate, not policy or one-man policy, as it is in high schools mostly today. And then I got into college at Stephen F. Austin State University, and they were doing this newer format at the time called public debate in the International Public Debate Association. And as an LD debater, I was a little thrown by this because I was used to having three resolutions a year and heavy research and talking about philosophy and pre-writing cases. And in this format, they had a different resolution every single round, and you only had 30 minutes to prep a case. And the, the biggest difference was the idea that our judges were mostly lay judges, and that was by design. They would get students for extra credit in a public speaking class, or you, know, you could have anyone from a professor to a janitor in the back of the room, and you had to be able to adapt your case. And it took me a while to, to adjust to that, but I kind of fell in love with the format. And then I went and I worked public relations stuff for a while, and I, I eventually came back to it. I, was, I had gotten into sales at one point. And I was selling cars and I was making like a ridiculous amount of money. Like back in, it's, it was 2007, 2008, where, I mean, modernly now, like everyone has voice control over everything between Alexa devices or Siri or whatever. But back then it was a high tech thing. And I was putting, you know, voice controlled stereos in my car just because I was making that kind of money. And there was one week where I, you know, I'd made a bunch of money. I was feeling really proud of myself and, I was sitting at my desk and I looked over and saw this other salesman. His name was Fred and Fred had been selling cars for 25 years. And I realized I, that was where I was going and that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted my impact to be more. And I thought as I was sitting there, where did I feel like the most impact was? And it was, for me, it was always being a debater. And I said, I want to be a debate coach. So I applied to Sam Houston. They had just started their new master's program in communication uh, Sam Houston State University in Huntsville, Texas, and I got in and got there because when I was competing, they always had this legendary debate team, and I got there, and they didn't have a team anymore, so you know, I was like 25 and this brash young grad student. I'm like, well, let me start one. So I did, and we did okay in our first year. In our second year, where they actually gave us a budget, because our first year, I was using my grad stipend to fund us to uh, travel to tournaments, and people were taking pity on us and just waiving entry fees. And I think we ended up placing like fourth or fifth overall, which is a really good showing that way. 
And then the second year, we just caught fire when we actually had a budget and we won like three or four national titles and we were top ranked. And I, you know, just really got into it you know, since then. Uh, I spent a couple more years there and uh, it, no point did Sam Houston ever actually pay me to coach. I was always a volunteer thing. I was either a student or I was teaching um, for Wee College Huntsville Center, and uh, which is a prison education program. And then uh, it, the end of my fourth year at Sam Houston, Texas cut funding for prison education, so I lost my job and I had to leave to go elsewhere. Um, but by that point, we'd amassed 11 national titles. Uh, we'd hosted nationals, uh, which was the biggest national tournament the organization had hosted at the time. And at 28, I became the youngest person to ever get the organization's Coach of the Year award. And so all that kind of got ripped out from under me. And then I ended up taking the only job I could coaching, which was high school debate in El Paso for Burgess High School. And I, I went and did the best I could that year. And they, didn't re- they had an IE program, but no real debate program. So I took these kids who never debated before. And by the end of the year, I qualified a team for what was – I guess it's now NSDA Nats. It was still NFL at that time. It was right around the transition. And then took a job coaching at Tennessee State University, started a debate program there. And then finally got to the point where I'm like, I need to get a PhD. So I came to, or oh, over the process. And um, while I was there in uh, El Paso, I started the MFA program in forensics at Minnesota State University, which is the MFA and IEs. And that's where we really got the idea for this program. And completed that, uh, and then finally decided to go and get a PhD, and came to Texas A&M and got my old prison education job back because we did more funding at that point. And my dean was really supportive of the debate idea because prison debate with Malcolm X. So I actually started a debate team at the Walls Unit, which is one of the most infamous prisons in Texas, if not the world. It's where Texas does its executions. And I started a debate program there, and the the team was actually undefeated. Every year we started, uh, we called them the George Beto Invitational Debates because Beto was the guy who started prison education in Texas back in the 60s. And the first time out, they uh, we had five judges, and they had a 3-2 victory over Texas A&M. And then the next year they debated and on a 4-1, uh, had a 4-1 victory over Wiley College's The Great Debaters. And towards the end of that, we were supposed to have one more than scheduling conflicts and new warden got in the way against Rice University. But by that point, I had also then taken a position at University of Arkansas at Monticello, which the guy, uh, Jim Evans, who is one of my uh, co-faculty here, is the guy who really taught me to coach. So I kind of came full circle with that. You know, I debated all through high school and college. I got out of it like most people do, went and got you know, a job job. And then when I got back into debate, I'm now teaching, coaching alongside the guy who taught me to be a debate coach. And they've been very supportive here. And when when I was interviewing, uh, they said, you know, we we really are interested in this MFA degree you have, and we want to start one ourselves in debate. Would you be interested in doing that? Absolutely. I think that's a fantastic idea. And after about two and a half years of work, we will be starting this program here next semester. That's amazing. I love that story. I was just telling my, uh, so I teach uh, 11th grade philosophy is one of my core classes I still, I teach. And uh, today we were talking about like, how do you evaluate different philosophies? And one of the metrics that I like using for that is uh, telling students to look at the life of somebody who has lived according to the principles that they espouse. 
And at least you can evaluate that and think about, okay, do I want to be like that person 30 years from now? And if that person's principles lead to that lifestyle, that can give you a pretty clear indication of whether that's a set of things you want to pursue or not. I, I hear a lot of that in what you were describing about the uh, uh, looking at a car salesman and thinking about impact. I, I love that. That's a great story. Uh, yeah, and I didn't even intend for it to be, end up being what it, that's literally just what happened was I – I decided that I wanted to do more for the world than just make money off of it. And because I mean that we teach students these skills in debate to go out and be persuasive, but persuasion without ethics or persuasion without some type of goal for a greater good becomes a problem. When winning becomes everything, that's when we get unethical people who grow into being unethical CEOs and unethical politicians. And I think a lot of problems we have are people who are great at persuading others who don't have that ethical or moral guideline. In fact, I mean, as debate coaches, you and I both know that some of the greatest examples we have of people, Adolf Hitler, Charles Manson, et cetera, who were amazing at persuasion were awful people. And that's the reason we know they're so amazing is how do you convince people to do these horrific things? Mm. So for me, it's always, it's been an ethical calling too. I mean, you, you look at, you know, they, um, my students right now, I'm teaching an election seminar, and these students were telling me right before the first uh, debate between Trump and Biden that they were 15, 16, 17, you know, during the last election, and this was the first one they were paying attention to. And then they watched the first debate, and they came back to me. They're like, is this what's supposed to happen? I'm like, no, it's not. Like, I showed them, in fact, I have them this week since the debate's been canceled. They're watching the Obama-McCain de or debate, or one of them doing a comparison contrast because it, it, the point where like we lose what debate is, the fact that you have respect between both sides, mm -hmm. it, it becomes a problem. And so it's, it's kind of a good time in this country to have a focus on what makes debate a good thing and how can we get better at coaching people to do it? Because this program is not about training you to be a good debater. This program is about training you to be a good debate coach in the same way that, you know, we had trained people to be good teachers, et cetera. Say a bit more about that. I, that reminds me of years ago, I was, I was telling a coach I met at a tournament about the, uh, the fact that one of my students had just trounced me in a debate. And I, I felt kind of bad. I was like, I should be able to beat my own student. But it was one of my students that I taught for two or three years and he had researched the resolution and I hadn't really. I've been focusing on more the structural aspects of coaching. And this coach told me, he's like, yeah, that's not a surprise. Like I lose to my varsity kids all the time when we pra when practice rounds, because he told me that uh, coaching is such a different skill set than debating. So what, what would you kind of put in that? What, what are some of the big coaching skill set pieces that are different from the debate skill set pieces? Oh, debate and coaching. Uh, apparently I'm making a lot of story time today. So let's go into this one. Uh, Jim Evans, who is, one of the other faculty, uh, you know, in the department here, and also you will be teaching in this program. When I first joined as a coach, my only experience in debate had been as a competitor. I never worked as an Adolf before I was coaching my own team because when I came into Sam Houston, I started it. So when you're a competitor, your goal is to win. Now, you have a good coach, they teach you to win ethically, but still, we have an overemphasis on winning. I mean, the number of shiny plastic trophies you bring back 
in a lot of places dictates your funding because if you're bringing home national championships, they want to give you more money. And if your team never wins, no one gives it to you. Plus teams that win set the pace and style for what's acceptable. And you see this in high school formats, college and university formats and all the different organizations. Whoever is winning kind of sets the rules for how things are going to go. So I come in as a coach only having ever been a competitor and it doesn't occur to me that the other coaches are not my opponents. So everything I was going and doing was all about, you know, winning and treating them like I have to beat you as opposed to we are colleagues. And so it's a completely different mindset. And it was Jim who finally pulled me aside. He's like, this isn't a debate rounds. You have to stop trying to beat the other coaches at things. Because when it came to decisions and everything, I was more, you know, there was less emphasis in my part about collegiality and more about getting what I wanted or, you know, what was in the best interest of my students as opposed to the organization or the activity. So my students who have then become coaches and, you know, you almost want to like go back and apologize to your debate coaches for, you know, the type of like student you were. But I mean, that's your job as a student is to be challenging, et cetera. And you start seeing things from a different perspective. You start, you know, it's the same as anyone who has ever become a teacher. Once you're on this side of the classroom, you start to see things in a different way. Or, you know, if you become a parent, you start to see things different than when you were a child. And that's the natural role and order of things. So the skill sets as a coach, you may not be as good as your debaters. In fact, if you're a great coach, you won't be. If I'm training a student to write or a training, if I'm a football coach, I'm training a student to compete. I would imagine that most NFL coaches, if they tried to go like scrimmage with their players, would lose horribly because it's a, a certain point, the younger people outpace you. And if you're training them right, they're going to, you know, you want them to learn and have better than you did. And all that means is you're also out coaching the people who coached you. And so seeing, you know, it, it's also seeing like the right combination of people. I was having a discussion with one of the debaters today um, who's on the UAM team. And he was going into you know, a tournament this weekend and they're in team debate. And he was like, I don't know, my partner's you know, just very different from me. I'm not sure if this is going to work. It's like, you want that to be the case. If the two of you have the exact same skill set, one of you is useless. You want us to spread these things out. So it, it's about understanding, uh, you know, the people factor of it and understanding that the goal of debate is to have good rounds, not to win them. Like I would much rather have coaches that train students to have good ethical rounds that don't win as often than you know, the ones who do some shady things, which we've all seen and rack up wins because a win doesn't mean anything unless you do some ethically. Uh, and it's also a large part of being a coach is an administrator. Like you are doing the paperwork and the tasks and everything. One of my former students, who's now a coach, uh, who's an Adolf, has no interest in being DOF. He doesn't want to be director because he doesn't want to be administratively responsible. He just likes working with students. And, you know, the same way a lot of teachers don't want to become deans because for the same reason. There's There are various skill sets involved. So that that's one of the biggest things I think people need to realize is we're, you know, this program is not about training you to be win or win all the arguments. In fact, this program is about training you to train people to win them. I think that's a fabulous 
picture of coaching. I mean, at least it certainly resonates with my, I think this is my sixth year coaching and I kind of saw myself go through some of that cycle. I mean, that, and, and really realizing that it's not based for us. We've, we've always been a very small program. We've never been, uh, we're, we've never been terribly competitive on a, on a national circuit. We're, we're decent now on a regional basis. I have some varsity kids who break at regional tournaments and stuff, but uh, for us, it's been, it's, but it's all, there's always that tension, that desire. I, I can feel my own competitive urge to try and rank myself against other coaches or our program against other coaches, but, or against other programs, but it's really not about that. It's about making sure the students are moving through the process solidly and that they're enjoying themselves and they're coming back to it um, week in and week out and getting better at research and argumentation and everything. One of my uh, friends, his name is Steve Gude. He's fond of saying debate should be two things, fun and educational. And when it stops being either, we should stop doing it. And I, I live by that mantra in coaching and training other coaches. Because it's kind of like being like, you know, you're at a high school, the high school football coach or even the college football coach. Almost no student, your coach is ever going to make it to the NFL. And most of our students are not going to end up arguing before the Supreme Court of the United States, even though every debater, for some reason, seems to want to be an attorney, which is why we have too many attorneys in this country. So my students have gone on to a variety of professions, and I want to be able to train them in, in such a way and then train coaches to train them in such a way that they'll be able to have the tools to be successful wherever they go, because persuasion is an important skill. If one day that you're a parent and you go to the PTA meeting and they, they have a proposal you don't like, they want to, you know, like take out the healthy snack vending machines and bring in the, the soda machines, you want to be able to on the spot get up and persuade the real people in front of you. And that if, if my student is able to do something like that, that's a win. I don't need a trophy to tell me that I've trained the student well. I need to see the student succeed. And if they go ask their boss for a raise... And there's, you know, they're, and even if they don't get it, if they're able to go and make a, a cognizant case, that's a win. I, and, and that's the thing about coaching is coaching is a, you know, it's not just a job, it's a profession, right? It, it's something where it, it's almost like a, I don't want to get in the whole sacred duty thing because I know like every time we talk about like loving a profession that leads to exploitation, but it's also, it's an important thing to realize that, you know, we're not, saving lives here this is you're not training doctors but at the same time you are training students with skills that they're going to go on and use forever like no offense to all the math and history professors or whatever but you know you may not find the value of x every day but you will find the value in how to communicate effectively for yourself and persuade others in almost every day well coaching is definitely one of those places i think uh uh, I, I think it overlaps in a lot of ways with um, some aspects of pastoral ministry and certainly a lot of aspects of teaching where uh, even though we might not, we don't, I don't think we usually put it in these terms, but there's definitely aspects of coaching that function as much as soul care as anything else, where I'm interacting with these students, not just as competitors, but as people and helping them grow to become better people through their participation in this activity. And I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I think I, I'd probably shy away too from using sacred language there, but there is something, there's a high calling to that too, um, that I don't know that we often focus on. I mean, I always think of it this way for if I get a student for one, two, three, four years, 
I'm helping to raise other people's kids, right? In the same way that a parent or anybody else is going to influence these people's lives, I want to be able to positively influence them and be part of their story. Because while we, we love and try to remember all of these students, I know that I remember a lot of professors that I had or teachers I had who impacted me a lot more than they're ever going to remember me. So they're part of my story and I want to be part of my student's story, but I also want to train coaches to be part of theirs. And that's you know, really how impact happens is, you know, things like that. I, I had a recently ran into one of my old mentors, uh, not in a, a debate sense, just a teaching sense at uh, NCA national communication association conference. It was a couple of years ago. I hadn't seen him in 10 or 15 years but he made such a profound impact on me when I was an undergraduate, just in how he communicated, how he held himself, the things he taught me and how rigorous he was that when I started teaching, I used a lot of the things he did and I hadn't seen him in a decade and a half. And he remembered me, but even if he hadn't, the point wasn't that I, you know, I wasn't so much part of his story. He was very much part of mine. And we all remember our debate coaches for you know, the good, the bad, the indifferent, because you spend way more time in debate than you do with anything else. I always, I train my uh, debaters to always say, I can't, I have debate. Because you're going to end up saying it over and over and over. And it, it takes a special kind of a student who wants to hop in a 15-passenger van and drive for eight hours and go argue about a topic they don't personally care about in an empty classroom with another uh, student and a judge and eat dinner at 10 p.m. at Chili's because it's the only place that's open <laughs> and do that every other weekend forever. When, Because, I mean, you know, we, we used to joke when I was at Steve of Austin, I think the university had like 15,000 uh, 15, students, and we used to say that there were uh, 14,985 of them were out getting drunk right now, and the 15 of us were here debating about whatever it's it's the type of thing you spend so much time with them coaching as opposed to anything else. And even among like football coaches, like your season lasts a semester. Our season goes from August until March or April. And in high school, it goes until June. Like, you know, like when I was debating in high school, I think I saw my coach as much as I saw my parents. So. Well, let's shift gears just a little bit. Um, tell me a little bit about the ideal audience for this program? Are you are you thinking of somebody who is already established in a coaching program who's looking kind of to level up on credentialing for pay scale or accreditation purposes? Or are you thinking of somebody who kind of has uh, one TOC in high school and one NFA Nats in college and is now headed on to coach a coach some future program, but wants to get the credentialing beforehand? Or like, who is that ideal student for this program? So in some ways, both. We primarily aim at people who are currently employed as debate coaches. Because up until now, the debate coach system, despite all of the advances we've done and everything else, being a debate coach is often like being a journeyman was in the you know in medieval times. Like you get a job as someone's assistant coach. And in the process of working and training students, they train you to coach. Or if you start off like I did, you find a mentor who's another coach from another team if someone will take you. And we train them very much like modernly we train tattoo artists. You train by doing. 
there's not a lot of programs that, or you do so as a graduate assistant, you and your master's or something like that. But there are not programs currently out there that are dedicated to teaching people getting better at coaching. So it's a lot of trial and error. And our goal here is to advance people to take some of the trial and error out of it by offering them classes from some of the best debate coaches in various formats across the country and also in various topics. Uh, so we would, we would take anybody from, you know, just starting out as a coach who had some success or even no success, but, you know, cause a lot of debate coaches end up, uh, especially in the high school level, you get hired for speech and you're like, Hey, you're the debate coach now. And a lot of them are like, what's debate? We'll, you know, we'll train them as well as training, you know, people who've had some success in this, because as we know, no matter who you are, you can always get better. And it also offers, you know, the overall credentialing, uh, which certainly helps uh, in terms of in the high school level. I know most high schools will pay you like a greater stipend for having a graduate degree. And an MFA is a terminal degree, uh, much like a PhD or an EDD. An MFA is a terminal degree in performance. So you'll, there's the, Minnesota State has the MFA in forensics, which is, you know, IEs. You have MFAs in theater and creative writing. You know, a PhD is a terminal degree in research. An MFA is a terminal degree in performance and doing something. So the reason this is an MFA and not a PhD program is coaching is something you actively do, not something you research. Although we do teach research skills in uh, debate, we want to train people to be better coaches. So someone who's already, uh, ideally someone who's already employed, we will take people who are not currently on a case-by-case basis, but they would have to establish because it's an online program that they have sufficient backing and background in debate. What we're trying to avoid is people who are, going to come into this program with no background or intention, like we will reject those applications. We, we want to make better debate coaches, not just pad people's resumes. Well, that makes sense. I, I love that distinction. I'd never heard that distinction between the PhD and the MFA before. That's, that's really helpful. Um, yeah. Like you can't get a PhD in theater or art. You can get them in art history, but no one is sitting there like, you know, researching, like, what's the best way to paint? What they are doing is becoming better painters. And it it comes back to in the 1920s, I believe is 1921, uh, when the teachers of oral English broke off, uh, which uh, informed what is now the National Communication Association. There was a debate in what is now the quarterly journal of speech and the first issues on what type of discipline communication ought to be. Because prior to this, English teachers and English professors taught public speaking. It was just considered a oral version of what they did. And Wilburton Hunt got into this massive debate uh, in the pages of the Q, or of QJS and what we're supposed to be on whether or not we should be a social science or humanity or a skills performance. And the one that went out obviously was the one who was more um, about the research, but the original argument was that we should be like, for instance, Bill Nye is not a scientist. He's a science communicator and that we ought train people in the art of speaking, but you can make it all the way through a PhD. And I did without ever having to give a speech in communication. We take the different mindset that we want to train people at being better at training people to speak. But our hope is that, you know, Minnesota state was the first, we're the second. We hope that eventually we'll see MFAs in public speaking. I mean, if the success of TED and TED Talks has taught us anything, public speaking is not going anywhere. And we need people to speak well, but also people to train others to speak well. 
So I'm a, I teach at a classical school. One of the things that we consistently try to emphasize is the perennial value of rhetoric. And that's, uh, I mean, that's uh, our dean of academics is a huge fan of Quintilian and loves looking at Quintilian as a, a teacher of rhetoric. And I think there's there's something there about the the ongoing value of not just the formal study, but also the performance of rhetoric and the perform the the giving of speeches and the engagement in public speaking as something that's vital, both not really just for democracy, but definitely in a in a democratic life. Uh, I'd be that'd be really interesting to see to watch that over uh, over coming years. Um, well, tell us a little bit about. I know you mentioned this has been uh, this program has been two and a half years in developing. You've mentioned a. Uh, one specific professor and several coaches who are going to be a part of teaching in this program. What all goes into building a, an MFA? I don't know very much about how these how graduate programs are put together. Like, walk us through some of the story behind this program. So, the idea was UAM Monticello is a very small town, and UAM is a pretty small school. We are a town of roughly nine thousand in southeast Arkansas. So we have really great programs here, but attracting people to physically come to the university for uh, graduate programs, except in forestry, has proved difficult, simply based on the fact that we're kind of in the middle of nowhere. It's a great town. I love being here, but uh, Philadelphia, New York City, et cetera, we are not. So this university has really utilized you know, the strong suit of online education and its graduate programs, particularly in the School of Arts and Humanities and under the leadership of our Dean, Mark Spencer. We offer a Master's of Music, a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing, and soon a Master of Arts in English uh, that's in the works as well, which with an emphasis on children's literature. And we have decided to follow that same format by making things fully online, but that offers students two, a couple things. Number one, it gives them the ability to basically not have to leave their current jobs. Like, let's say you wanted to get this degree. You don't have to move to Arkansas for two years to do it. You can do it from wherever you are. Because active debate coaches, if we know one thing, is they love their kids, they love their programs, they love their jobs very often. And they're not, no one's going to want to sit there and be like, hold on, students, let me leave you for two years and come back and do this. And most employers don't like that either. So it gives you the chance to learn and improve while you're still working and actively apply those skills as you learn them in your coaching. Like what you learn in the classroom on Tuesday, you can Wednesday be using that to coach your students. And the second part of the online format, and this is one of the things our Master of Music and Master of Fine Arts and Creative Writing do well, is essentially part-time graduate instructors. So while we have a small faculty here, what we will be doing is leveraging the fact that in addition to being able to learn, uh, students being able to learn from anywhere, faculty can teach from anywhere. So when we have, for instance, you know, we might look at someone like the legendary Jack Rogers, who's a good friend of the program, about teaching something like world's debate. Or, you know, we if we have a bunch of high school coaches who want, you know, who are doing CX and policy, we might find someone who's, you know, just a really great policy debate coach who we could pay for a single class. So there's nowhere else that it, without this online format, there's nowhere else where you can go learn from all these great masters at the same time. You can do it from wherever. They can teach from wherever. And our program brings together this, you know, both these great faculty, great students and great structure that allows for everyone to learn from the best without 
anyone having to travel anywhere. That sounds like the best of the online school possibilities with also the uh, really some unique possibilities that really have never been possible before. Is uh, I thought through a lot of those same factors when I was picking a PhD program, I ended up picking an online one for a lot of those same reasons about I can keep my job, uh, my salary is much nicer than a graduate student stipend would be, and my healthcare plan is better, all those things. My wife and I like our current neighborhood and the online education possibilities are great. Uh, but I hadn't thought about the way that would let such a program kind of draw on existing coaches. So this this program will have a, I guess I'm thinking of like a, a very real world practical kind of, this is what coaching looks like today. Not so much the, you know, some industries have sort of a five to 10 year lag between the way skills are taught in programs and the way they're actually practiced in the field. But it sounds like your program is not really going to, may, may not struggle with that. And as much as it's being taught by current practitioners of coaching. Yeah. I mean, that's not to say that we won't have, for instance, some retired legendary coaches, you know, doing it. But again, MFA being performance, if you want to, I mean, let me apply it to say acting, right? If you wanted to go be a great actor and, you know, get this, you know, MFA performance in acting, you could go and take two years out of your life and go to one particular school, or you could, you know, and with faculty only hired by this particular school in this particular location, et cetera. Or you could keep your current you know, gig where you are and go to a program that allows you online access to people who like, let's say Tom Hanks might be teaching, you know, this one class. And he's only teaching this one class one time, you know, and then the next time it's, it's coming around, you know, it might be, you know, Brad Pitt or Meg Ryan or whoever, and they're teaching you the skills that they are currently using or have established themselves as being legendary at. So not only do we not have a lag, but the fact is, you know, so long as these uh, coaches are willing to teach for us, we can use all of the grades from any format anywhere on just a course by course basis, because you're not, you know, it's not like the, the New York Yankees where we have all, you know, like millions of dollars to just hire all these people. Plus these people don't, you know, like I'm not going to attract a debate coach here and be like, sorry, you can't coach this team. We already have a coach. They want to keep their teams. So instead we offer to hire them, on, you know, to teach one individual class on their area of expertise and that's it. And that way students get exposed to so many different people as opposed to the same faculty for multiple things. And this overall format takes it out of a journeyman format. And then instead of, you know, you have to follow the coaches around, it virtually brings the coaches to you. Well, Adam, it sounds like you have uh, got the beginnings of a great program, and I, I hope it does go well. On the unlikely chance that anybody listening to this show is a, a coach and is like, ah, an MFA is what I have been missing in my life. Where can they go online to find out more about your program and maybe submit an application? So easiest way is to re, uh, online is uamont, U-A-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Uh, we are under the School of Arts and Humanities. There's a link directly on the left side for that. Uh, and also just email me directly, which is K-E-Y uh, key at uamont dot E-D-U. Um, we are fielding applications and inquiries you know, pretty regularly here. And there's a lot of excitement over this program. And the great part about an online program is we don't have, we're not limited by social distancing. So we can have you know, larger classes if, if need be. 
So we'd be really happy to get 10, 15, 20 students just in the spring and build the program from there. Uh, we also, if you are in Arkansas or any state that borders Arkansas, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, we have a whole list of them. Uh, the university offers in-state tuition. Uh, and in fact, our, our tuition is one of the, I think the lowest in the state of Arkansas already. And even out-of-state tuition is still cheaper than a lot of places. But yeah, we, so if you're in anywhere, Arkansas or anywhere that borders it, you pay like you're an Arkansas resident. Fantastic. Well, uh, let me ask you one last question. I know we'll have to wrap this up as this episode is getting long, but uh, as a college professor and as somebody who has kind of taken a, uh, a bit of a circuitous route uh, to a career in academia and communications, uh, what advice would you offer any high school students who are currently involved in debate but are looking at college applications and they're trying to figure out what makes this college different from some other college. Like what, what advice would you offer such an imaginary student as to what should, this is what you should look for in your college selection. People think that college, the best part of it is the classes and I should go to the place that has the best classes. I'll get the best job. When I think back uh, 10, 15 years ago when I was an undergrad student, I remember good teachers, but I also remember, the community aspect as well, the networking I was able to do. Don't try to get into the highest ranked school or the highest ranked debate team. Try to get into the one where you're going to fit in to be challenged in your ideas, but also feel welcome and safe where you're at. Because in the end, you know, like unless you're going to Harvard or some one of the other Ivy Leagues or, you know, some like gigantic school like USC, Jobs really don't care that much where you went. And you can have a winning team no matter where you're at. Because, again, winning is not about gathering trophies. Winning is about finding the coach in the community. It's going to make you a better person. Because unless you're going to become a coach or a lawyer, you're not going to be arguing or debating forever. So don't try to sit here and make your, your whole world about the best school or the best debate team. Instead, try to find the best place that'll give you the best experience. That's great wisdom for uh, our high school seniors listening to the show. Well, Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to another episode of What's the Res? We here at What's the Res are dedicated to hosting the ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. This has been one of our special episodes with one of the leaders in the debate community. Uh, Dr. Adam Key is overseeing, as you've heard on this episode, the beginnings of a uh, Master in Fine Arts program looking specifically at debate and communication. So if you are interested in finding out more about that program, go back to the show description and you can click the link there. That'll take you right directly to uh, the website for this program. If you want to get in touch with us to give us any feedback about this episode or pass on any questions or thoughts you have, you can email us at whatstheres at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or on uh, Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit with the handle at whatstheres underscore, or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash whatstheres. Thank you for tuning in, and until next time, speak well, work hard, and seek the truth.